Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting July 29, 2016, we consider global factors connecting Brexit in the UK with the triumph of Trump in America's Republican politics and the rise of the right elsewhere. Our guest is Michael A. Genovese, president of the World Policy Institute at Loyola Marymount University and holder of the Loyola Chair of Leadership there. His post on the WPJ blog earlier this year is headlined, The West's Growing Democratic Distemper. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, last week Donald Trump hinted he'd look the other way if one of America's NATO allies was attacked, a stark repudiation of the alliance that has been the cornerstone of North Atlantic security for seven decades. Now, Trump has suggested that Russia should conduct cyber espionage against his rival for the presidency, Hillary Clinton. Political machinations aside, the dual episodes speak to a rising fear in Washington of a Russia resurgent, a Russia that can and has used its robust cyber capabilities against the United States. Officials in the intelligence community say it is a rapidly growing national security threat and that the U.S. must continue to ramp up its own cyber capabilities. Speaking of intelligence gathering, continued terror attacks in Germany and France are causing some U.S. officials to say that both of these key American allies should be part of the so-called Five Eyes program that, of course, is the intelligence sharing network of the U.S., Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. One U.S. analyst tells me the fact that Germany and France are not in the program creates a vulnerability that terrorists have been exploiting. And the White House is criticizing Israel for knocking down Palestinian homes so it can build new homes for Israeli citizens. The State Department says the demolitions have made dozens of Palestinian families, including children, homeless. The U.S. calls the move provocative and not conducive to long-term efforts to build peace in the region. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. much of the Western world today, life is imitating art, not with angry cries from windowsills as in the 1976 film Network about the viral rant of a crazed TV anchorman, but in the streets and at election stations where anti-government, anti-globalist, anti-immigrant, and anti-change sentiments are gaining such sway. In Great Britain, it's Brexit from the European Union. In the U.S., it's the Republican presidential primary sweep of real estate and reality TV star Donald Trump. And there are powerful echoes from France, Hungary, Poland, Austria, even Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands. The causes range from a tidal outflow of jobs and a tidal influx of immigrants, real or imagined, to terror threats foreign and domestic, and the perceived weakness of government to deal effectively or fairly with any of it. 
The West's growing democratic distemper was a prescient piece for the World Policy blog earlier this year by Michael A. Genovese, president of the World Policy Institute at Loyola Marymount University and holder of the Loyola Chair of Leadership there. We talked recently for this podcast about how the factors on which he focused have been playing out and how they might be better dealt with. Professor Genovese, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you, David. Good to be here. We know about the far-right's resurgence in France under the neo-Nazi front of Marine Le Pen, but talk about the parallel process underway in Hungary, Poland, Denmark, Sweden, and the Netherlands, and if you see signs it will produce more exits from the EU. Well, let me start with the last first, which is that I, I don't see a mass exodus from the EU. I think the lesson from Brexit was... Number one, that no one really thought it was going to go through. When it went through, there was such chaos that was produced that I think a lot of nation states would hesitate in taking that step. Plus, a lot depends on how the exit actually takes place. Will Britain get a soft landing or will they be, I don't want to say punished for the Brexit, but will they be dealt with, you know, somewhat harshly? Will, they, will, they use, will the EU use this as a lesson to others not to mess with them? Now, in terms of um, the resurgence and the rise of the, of the far right, it's a Western phenomenon, and it's a function of the difference between liberal democracy, the rule of law, checks and balances, which most voters feel has not satisfied their demands or their needs, and the rise of illiberal democracy, which is basically the kind of the Putinist model where you elect a strongman to solve your problems. Both are democratic, but one is based on the rule of law and the other is based on kind of a personal appeal. Donald Trump is, in a way, a symbol of that in the United States. Uh, but you see it with Putin in Russia, with Orban in, in Hungary and elsewhere. And it was triggered, as you said in your uh, opening, uh, the flood of immigration has left a lot of people wondering what's happening to my country and am I losing control to the other. We saw that uh, impact in the United States uh, in some ways on the reaction against Barack Obama. You saw the Tea Party rise in the Republican right of people saying, he's not one of us. He doesn't represent me. I want my country back. And it's a subtle way, kind of the dog whistle of uh, racism that you see coming about. And I think that's true across the globe when people see that their traditional societies are being, in their view, overrun by outsiders. And so that creates anger and frustration. And it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that the economies of Europe have been very slow to recover. And a lot of people are feeling the angst of that. And so uh, I expect things to continue along those lines. I don't know that they'll get much worse unless conditions get worse. Well, that litany of working-class citizen voter complaints has certainly become familiar since your post was first published. Uh, but you pointed out some additional complexities and conundrums. One is that the same globalization that's siphoning jobs from Western democracies is also undermining the power of political leaders to cope with that and other problems. Say more about that. Well, I think this is one of the unrecognized dilemmas that we face in that we have expected our leaders to solve our problems. Instead of the, the leader being the problem that we need to solve, the sol solution is the leader. The leader is supposed to solve problems, but the leader doesn't have the authority, the power, the clout 
that he or she once had. Power is becoming less fungible internationally as problems go from being national to international or even regional problems. There's no major problem that you can solve today that you can do with one nation state. Uh, pollution. That knows no borders. And if you're going to solve the crisis of climate change, you're going to have to do that multilaterally. And so what that means is that power is less fungible within a state because the, the decisions need to be made at a different level. People aren't going to like that. They're going to say, well, we're losing control. We're leading from behind is the phrase that's used in the United States. But it's absolutely necessary that we realize that the fundamental nature of power in a globalized world is changing. And it's changing from the strong leader dominating to the negotiator, the meeting caller, the agenda setter, that person who can bring people together. That's where the future of leadership lies. In an earlier article for the winter issue of World Policy Journal, you discussed at greater length the challenges to leadership in a developing age of what you call hyperchange. Uh, define that for us. Well, hyperchange is a phrase I've used in a couple of my recent books, and it, it really is a combination of four factors and their impact on the world. One is globalization. The second is technology and its changes. The third is environmentalism, and the fourth is demographic changes. Each of those in and of themselves are enormous pressure points. But when you combine them, you go from a world of change to hyperchange. And technology is leading that uh, with, you know, this disruptive forces that every new invention, every new technological advance, it, it's confusing to a lot of people. It creates um, uh, tension. It creates uncertainty and insecurity. And technology is going to continue to change. So we need to deal with that. We need to deal with globalization and its impact. You know, the world is not just one nation. It's more of a community in a very real sense. A third thing, we've t touched on demographic changes, uh, both the, uh, the changes that immigration is going to produce, but also, and more importantly, I think, the changes that uh, the rise of women are going to produce. In the United States alone, more women go to college than men, graduate school than men, law school than men, med schools than men. And so the real revolution is taking place, and women are going to be in positions in 20 years where they're going to run things. And a lot of males are going to find that and still do find that challenging, and they're scared. Uh, and so that produces the anxiety. The fourth uh, problem is the one that I've, I, I'm a very optimistic person, but I, I am least optimistic about our ability to deal with the environment. I think we're coming into it late. I think the Paris Accords are a, a step forward. But, you know, I think for every step forward, we're, we're taking one backwards. And uh, that's the one area that I'm not at all hopeful about. But um, I think we take those four things together you're talking about a world of constant rapid change, rapid fire change. And you know the old Yiddish saying, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. Well, <laughs> change, is, change is inevitable, and leaders have to help us deal with that change, help us work through those necessary changes. An era of hyperchange, you say, demands extraordinary flexibility in leadership. Some love or hate that in Donald Trump's tendency to shift and fudge his position, he makes his policies negotiable. Uh, it, it's a hallmark of the art of the deal. Uh, others see a lack of that kind of flexibility in Hillary Clinton's very long delayed and reluctant adoption of uh, more liberal priorities demanded by the followers of Bernie Sanders, whose support for her may be critical. How does each of them fit your view of the new leader, at least on the scale of, of necessary flexibility? 
Uh, I think neither fits. I think they're, they both have their problems. Donald Trump, with his narcissism um, and his lack of knowledge, is going to be the bull in the china shop. And he'll knock over a lot of things. He may solve a problem or two, but he's going to create more problems than he solves. So he seems to be quite inflexible. He seems to be very rigidly narcissistic. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, is more of a managerial type of leader, which, which has its role and has its place. But she's a very, very cautious leader in a time when you need someone who can, can adjust and adapt, be more nimble, move more quickly. The example I would give uh, would be Barack Obama, um, his uh, reluctance to simply cave into, if you saw the Atlantic uh, interview, um, you know, the war uh, uh, critics who want more violence and want more troops. His ability to maneuver that, his ability to be a kind of not a not a, a shift a sh- shapeshifter, but someone who's able to uh, basically um, deal with a variety of of problems. It's cost him. It's cost him politically when his critics say, "Well, he's he's leading from behind," but he's leading. The, the key is. How are we going to get it done, not am I going to get credit for it? And I think both uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump do not fit into the adaptability model that is going to be so necessary. Uh, the, the leader of tomorrow needs to be more of a poly, polymath leader. And Donald Trump is incredibly narrow in his skill set, some of which will apply to the job of president should it become one. Uh, Hillary has much more experience, but but she never has, has been that kind of, well, I hate to compare her to her husband, but you know, Bill was too flexible. She seems to be least, less flexible than he is, but too inflexible at times. So I think both candidates are problems in that area. You also note that for a new breed of agile leaders, uh, whenever they come along, global in vision and collaborative in their politics, an age of anxious hyperchange may produce more opportunities than calmer times. How would that work? Well, you know, in calm times, we're afraid of change, and yet change is upon us at such a breakneck pace that it's overwhelming us. The only way, there, there are two things necessary to deal positively with that hyperchange. One is circumstantial, and the other is leadership-oriented. The circumstances would be we have to create, and I think they exist, conditions in which people demand that something big happen, that politics as usual or you know, behavior as usual isn't cutting it. We're there. The second stage, though, is leaders have to then funnel the energy that is produced by that moment when change is possible into something constructive. And, and that's the tough part. Um, you know, the, the crisis opens doors, and those doors, you need to be ready to move uh, I'm not sure either candidate in America is, is, is in a position to, to do much about that. But you, what you need is someone with a very cosmopolitan and not a parochial view. Someone who, and I think Clinton has a lot of that, but someone who understands the give and take, someone who understands bargaining, negotiating, bringing people to the table, uh, agenda setting. The leader of tomorrow is going to be a meeting caller. You're going to have to call people together and get them to work together. And so you need to be agile, you need to be nimble, and you, and you have to, to give up the old notion of leadership as command model, top-down leadership. More leadership is going to percolate up than top-down. There's an old story that was told of 
Franklin Roosevelt, and it may be apocryphal, but it certainly applies, of a meeting he had in the White House with several labor leaders, and they come into his office demanding, do this for us, do that, we need this done, we need that done, and he says, I agree completely. Now go out there and force me to do it. And so you have to have the kind of backing to do the things that are needed to be done. Right now in the West, and it's very obviously true in the United States, the lack of trust in government which is at an all-time low since we've been measuring it, inhibits the ability of a leader to lead. The divided way our society is, polarized between left and right, makes it more difficult for a leader to lead. Now, the crisis of hyperchange may be that impetus that we need to at least open a door so a leader with creativity and with a little nimble and, and, and intelligent uh, behavior and, and policies might be able to move us through that door. But it's, it's really, the, the odds are not great. How does a nation find or create and most importantly choose uh, a leader like that? Uh, I mean, can you expect it to come up through uh, elections to, the, to Congress, elections to governor? Are there lessons from corporate America, especially companies in technology's cutting edge? Yes. How do you incentivize a voting public to vote for things that make sense in a world that seems not to make sense? And so I think you need to find ways to incentivize voters to do the right thing. Um, and yet we seem so often prey to the flash of the television, uh, the, the lure of celebrity, uh, the promise of salvation. The problem in, a, in an age of hyperchange is that you search for the savior, the strong man, the knight in shining armor. That is, in any age, it's dangerous. Um, and yet that's why you see Donald Trump. If you watch him, he makes these grandiose promises that are, wow, impressive as anything. But if you stop and think about it, you think, that's pretty crazy. He can't do those things. He doesn't have the power to do those things. And yet we're drawn to that because in a, in a world of high anxiety, we want to feel better. We need to feel better. And we search for someone with a simple answer to the complex problems. How do you get a leader who doesn't have those, um, those uh, tendencies? Well, the most important skill any leader can have is sound judgment. And there you look to the past and the past record of people. In that case, both Trump and Clinton are left wanting. The next thing you look for in a good leader is empathy. Trump has uh, almost zero empathy. Clinton has a, a high level of empathy, so that's good for her. Um, but, you know, you could have the ideal leader, the perfect candidate, and if people don't vote for him or her, it's useless. And so the public has to, to sort of take that step back from the edge and where they see themselves on the brink and say, what do I want in a leader? What for four or eight years do I want that person to look like? And what is realistic about the, their program? What can they really get done? And I, again, it's very difficult in an age of high anxiety to ask people to, to base their decisions on reason and not emotion. I was fascinated that for all your focus on the future, you still find relevance in three words from a 16th century political theorist and strategist, uh, Niccolò Machiavelli. Remind us of those words and the importance of each still today. Well, I am one of actually many who thinks that Machiavelli has been given a bad rap, that he never said the ends justify the means. What he really said, if you do a, the correct translation, is the ends help explain and even excuse the means. And all he was doing really was describing the way politicians behave, not the way 
he was nothing prescribing that you should behave badly. He said, we do behave badly. And so in a world, you have to base your actions on, on what is real and not what you wish were real. And there are three things that, uh, that he said uh, that make for, a, for a, a successful leader. The first is virtue. And by that, he didn't mean goodness. But to him, virtue was sort of the manly skills. In his age, it meant, in, in large part, military excellence and the, the ability to command in times of war. But in, in, in more general terms, virtue meant skill. Okay, that goes without saying, you need skill. The second thing you need, and the second key word for, for um, Machiavelli is occasione. You need occasion or context. Our age of hyperchange is that context that might be turned into something positive but could just as easily be turned into something negative. But if you've got high skill and you've got the occasion, then the third thing that comes in is fortuna or fortune. Uh, Machiavelli was um, almost obsessed with good and bad luck and its impact that it had, that the, the best laid plans of mice and men can go by the wayside if fortune comes in and destroys your plan. And, you know, they, they were saying, you know, man plans, God laughs. Um, Machiavelli was obsessed with this notion that, that luck played a very important part in life. Now, we know today that luck is something that is also created. The great golfer Gary Player used to say, the harder I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> and so that's where the importance of skill comes in, of experience, of self-awareness, of other awareness, of judgment and empathy come in. So virtue is the key. Occasione, occasion or context, opens or closes the door. And let's just hope you're lucky enough to get it done. Let's go back to some current priorities. If we can't stop globalization from shifting jobs to nations with lower wages or coming on uh, soon enough automation from replacing people almost altogether, can a new style of leadership embrace a kind of profit sharing, maybe a guaranteed income, so that even the jobless can have some self-respect and, importantly, the wherewithal to continue as, as critically necessary consumers? and feel that they're too benefiting from a system that inevitably favors the elites? Well, I think the whole dialogue around the 1% and Occupy Wall Street, uh, while it has its sort of ragtag side and it's not always a coherent movement, it raises an important question. Um, not that I think Bernie Sanders had the answers. I mean, if he runs for president and promises free tuition, of course, college students are going to vote for him and like him. Um, but they're raising, it raises an important question, and that is, you know, what, what do we do in an age of such grotesque income distribution? Um, yeah, as you know, the welfare state was created by Bismarck and, and others uh, in a, as an inherently conservative system, a system to conserve things. In effect, you have a welfare state so that people will not rebel against the, the status quo, not rebel against elite. And so a conservative principle is to have a generous safety net to, to keep things calm, to keep things basically in order. Never never stir the embers of class warfare. And I think that's what the 1% is doing now, and they are basically inviting the attacks on them. And they'll get worse because income distribution and income inequality are so grotesque that you know, it, it's become dysfunctional. And so um, I think one thing you can do is if you can harness that into a coherent policy. And, and again, Bernie Sanders was a voice with that message, but he never came up with a really truly coherent policy. Um, Clinton is going to move a little bit to the Bernie Sanders side for electoral reasons, but she's 
she is, as their critics say, a Wall Street kind of politician. Um, and so I don't expect her to do it, but I think there have to be voices out there. And, and as you know, most change percolates up from the bottom up, not from the top down. And so that bottom up, you have to create a kind of movement, if you will, and a kind of public awareness that this doesn't have to be. And you can point to Northern Europe and say, okay, why did they have such social stability compared to us? Why, did, why is their welfare state more generous? Yes, their taxes are higher, but what is it that you sacrifice for what? And I think right now, the, you know, the, 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 the 1% and the Occupy Wall Street movement is simply out there and it doesn't have a coherence. It doesn't have a real focus. It needs, a, it needs an advocate. And maybe Elizabeth Warren is that advocate. Bernie Sanders may have opened a door, and that door may be opened for Elizabeth Warren. Better control of terrorism, you write, would help diminish uh, our current distemper. Some say this must be done uh, by military means, to take away all the territory radical uh, Islamism now controls. Others talk of political settlements. Still others predict the ideology, suicide bombings, other attacks will persist around the world for generations. What's your view? I think terrorism is a real problem that we all need to take seriously, um, not diminish it in importance and not try to just simply wash over it quickly. Um, if you look at the responses to domestic violence uh, that is characterized as terrorist, and some of it is, some of it is more mental illness and access to guns, but, but people are afraid. And it, it makes news every day the mass killings and everything that's associated with that, it creates fear. You see people in rural Iowa saying, I'm going to get a gun because the terrorists are going to come. Well, we have to somehow, number one, recognize the legitimate fears that people have. Uh, and number two, we have to devise not reactive or reactionary solutions, but proactive solutions. Obviously, militarization is one part of that puzzle. You don't just, you know, let terrorists run amok. And so, yes, militarization is, as a part of the package is useful. But if it's the package, then it's going to fail. And so what we need to do is find ways to be more proactive by better integrating different cultures and different religions and different peoples into the mainstream by being more welcoming instead of being more suspicious. Now, I understand why people are suspicious. There are some people, you know, they, their fear is, is, is palpable um, through communication and through dialogue and through interfaith understanding. That's a hard, that's a hard thing to do. Um, uh, and so what you see is that the West, if it's going to win this war, and it is a war, has to not just talk the talk, but it has to walk the walk. It can't just say, we believe in diversity, we believe in equality, we believe in freedom of religion. You really have to, to walk that walk. And the best foreign policy that you can have, and the best enemy of terrorism, is the United States becoming a more just and equitable society. If we are that, that message will filter out, and then the message of the terrorists, which is ugly, violent, and destructive, loses. You also see a need for reason and rhetoric, a better defense of liberal democracy for all its faults. How would that narrative go for people who don't now feel they're benefiting from it? Well, you know, I think the West is kind of hesitant to, to toot its own horn, um, and, and in part because we're a flawed society. We're 
always going to be a flawed society. And so I think, you know, we're, we are humble for good reasons, but we also need to recognize our strength. And our strength is in our ideals. And the only way that those can become exportable strengths are if we really live that world, if we live that life. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the defense of liberal democracy has to show that it produces. Um, otherwise, you know, the, the strong man, a Putin, it's a very efficient government. Democracy, in liberal democracy, is not efficient. It's messy and it's ugly. But what we need to do is we need to get away from the hyper-partisanship that we have today and get to some, some more comedy, uh, the ability to do what we did at one point, which is work together, reach across the aisle. Um, you know, I watched uh, uh, FBI Director Comey's testimony and the venomous hatred that some Republicans uh, on that committee uh, were displaying. Uh, there's no reason that you could expect them to work with others. There, there's such hatred built into that. And, I'm, you know, you wonder why the partisan hatred. Well, it's been fueled by 20 years of the Newt Gingrich uh, shutting down governments, etc. Um, but as long as we, as long as that's who we are, you, the liberal democracy in America is not exportable and it's not attractive to most of the rest of the world. We need to show that we can make it work, and we make it work by saying to people like the representative Gowdy and others, you know, you're just not cutting it. You're not right for us. We don't want you. We reject that kind of hatred. Um, now, that's what gets on Fox News. It gets on television, but it doesn't get the job done. For a liberal democracy to be seen as being an attractive alternative, we need to make it work, and we're not making it work. So part of the responsibility is on our shoulders. Professor Genovese, thank you. Thank you very much. Michael A. Genovese is president of the World Policy Institute at Loyola Marymount University and holder of the Loyola Chair of Leadership there. The author of over 40 books, he also wrote a WPJ blog post in January headlined The West's Growing Democratic Distemper, and an article in the journal's issue this past winter headlined Leadership Challenges in a Hyper-Changing World. Featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about the problems with plans for a northern powerhouse in Great Britain before and after Brexit. And listen next week when our podcast will spotlight a new series of international takes on the U.S. election and its outcome the first by U.K. political blogger Jonathan Stubbs. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.